that's hard. If you haven't memorized the 66 books of the Bible in order, it's hard. I can't imagine trying to sing it. <laughs> the date was February 23rd. It was a Saturday. It was A.D. 155. The place was Smyrna, called by many the crown and the glory of Asia. The city was crowded with people there for the public games, and the crowds were excited when suddenly a cry went up, away with the atheists, let Polycarp be searched for. Atheist was a term they used on Christians back then because Christians didn't believe in or worship the Roman pantheons of God. And Polycarp was the pastor of the church there. He could have easily escaped, but the Lord had told him in a dream just that night that he was about to be burned at the stake. So it wasn't a surprise to him when the magistrate showed up with guards to escort him to the arena. What was a surprise that when the magistrate came, Polycarp gave orders to his household to feed them and give them all they wanted while he had the privilege of one more hour in prayer. Not even the magistrate wanted to see this godly man die, so all along the way to the arena, he pleaded with him, what harm is it to say Caesar is Lord, to offer the sacrifice and be saved? Polycarp, though, remained adamant. There is only one Lord, and his name is Jesus. When he entered the arena, the proconsul gave him a choice, Either curse the name of Christ and make sacrifice to Caesar or face certain death. Polycarp answered, For 86 years I've served him and he's never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? When he was threatened to be burned at the stake, Polycarp's reply was, You threaten me with fire that burns only for a time and is quickly quenched but you don't know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come and do what you will. With that, the crowds exploded. Many came rushing down to the floor of the arena with piles of wood for the burning. And as they were about to tie Polycarp to the stake, he stopped them and said, Leave me alone. God will give me not just the power to endure the fire, but the power to remain in the flames unmoved even with the security you would give by the nails. That's the account of Polycarp, the best-known and best-loved martyr of Smyrna. When Jesus spoke the words to the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, I wonder if John could have foreseen such an end to one that he loved as a son in the faith, one that John had cared for and trained and discipled to become the leader of the church there. To the church of Smyrna, Jesus said, To the angel of the church at Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you were rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, for I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus' message here to the church is the same he would give to us. A message easy to forget, especially in times of difficulty and trial. Because it's at those times we can feel so alone. Like no one knows or understands. But Jesus' message is... He knows. He knows what you're facing. He knows what you may be going through. He knows and he cares and he acts. It was no accident that Jesus refers to himself here as the first and the last. The one who died and rose again. Both of these phrases would have carried special meaning to the people of Smyrna. That Ephesus should have been addressed first among the seven churches in Revelation is understandable since it was large and prosperous, the government center, the leading city of Asia Minor. But just 35 miles to the north, and Bryce, can you bring up that first picture for Lorna's sake? I know she likes the pictures. (laughs) 35 miles north of Ephesus in what is today modern Turkey, and the modern city of Izmir, the third largest city of Turkey, Smyrna was Ephesus's greatest rival. It was second in influence, wealth, and prosperity, and these two cities were constantly vying for preeminence. Filled with a fierce civic pride, they wanted to be first and greatest in everything. So while Ephesus was called the first and greatest city of Asia, Smyrna was widely regarded as the first in beauty. Bryce, can you change it? Those are some of the ruins, and then one more. In Smyrna, in the middle of this huge metropolitan area today, it was a planned city thought out well with the buildings and roads reflecting a cohesive pattern that blended together as they rose up the slopes of Mount Pegasus. It was referred to, and call up the next one, Bryce, in such terms as the flower and the crown, even the glory of Asia. Lucian said it was the fairest of cities. The ancient Greek geographer and historian Strabo called it the most beautiful city of all. And call up the last picture. Greek philosopher Aristides said it is a flower of beauty such as earth and sun had never showed to mankind. If Ephesus was the New York of the ancient world, Smyrna was the San Francisco, built around a major harbor among narrow foothills. The city had beauty, it had wealth, it had a special relationship with Rome itself which dated back before Rome's ascendance to world power. Cicero called it one of our most faithful and most ancient of allies. In 195 BC, Smyrna was the first city in the world before Rome itself to build a temple to the goddess Roma. And in AD 26, when all the cities of Asia were competing for the privilege of erecting a temple to the emperor Tiberius, it was Smyrna that was chosen ahead even of Ephesus. And so it became the center of emperor worship in Asia. There in the midst of this pride and beauty lay not a strong, thriving church such as you found in Ephesus, a church that seemed to have almost everything. Rather, in Smyrna, you found a small, struggling congregation made up of members 
who were often at the bottom of society. They were there because they lived in a place where they were hated by the Jews who considered them heretics and persecuted by Romans because they refused to worship the beloved emperor. To follow Christ often literally meant giving up everything they had, having their possessions confiscated by the authorities, shunned by their neighbors. And so in this city known as the crown of Asia, Jesus says it would be these faithful believers who would receive a true crown. He calls it a crown of life. They might not be a church with everything, like the Ephesians, but they were a church with all they needed. Along with the church at Philadelphia, they're the only one mentioned in Revelation with which Jesus found no fault. To them, Jesus said, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. Simple words, but a source of strength and comfort. The one they served, the one speaking to them now, was here before all things were created. He is the first, and he will be here long after they are gone. He is the last. He is the eternal one. And the pain they might be going through now would be just a passing moment. As if to draw even further ties with the citizens of Smyrna, his title draws attention to the history of the city itself. A city which in 627 BC had been totally destroyed. It was dead for over three centuries. And it came back to life in 300 BC. To them he says, I am the one who died and came to life again. For those facing persecution and death, what good news that was. Even greater news than the story of the death and rebirth of a city. The name Smyrna itself is related to the word myrrh, which is a spice used back then in oil to anoint the dead. He had gone through the worst that life could offer, and he came out victorious. And now he commends the church for doing the same, to stand with him, to share his victory and glory. As one commentator said, the city was famous for two things, its beauty and its suffering, both of which figure prominently in this letter to the church. Because he knows their situation. He knows what they're going through. I know, he says, your affliction and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Not some casual knowledge here of the events such as you might gain from reading the newspaper, but he knows and he understands as one who has gone through the same experience himself, who enters in to our suffering and walks with us through our circumstances. The persecution and the poverty and the slander he's talking about here were not merely setbacks or difficulties associated with work or difficulties in a relationship. They stem from a people's faith and faithfulness. A faithfulness which required sometimes more than a couple of dollars in the offering plate and a few minutes in worship. He said, I know your afflictions, that you're being pressed down like grapes in a wine press. I know, he says, because that's what I went through with my own people who rejected and reviled him, who took him to the cross. Of him, Isaiah wrote, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid, hide their faces as he was despised. 
And he tells this church, I know your afflictions because I went through them. So too, he says, I know your poverty, that you're a people with literal nothing to live on. But remember, Jesus told those who sought to follow him, foxes have holes and birds of the nest have air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Though he had the wealth of heaven, he became poor for our sakes. And now he tells the church there, I know your poverty. But then he says, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not. A slander brought about by those who claim to be spiritual and religious. Those who claim to be enlightened. Rather than being instruments of God as they claimed, he says they're rather a synagogue of Satan. Now Jesus says, he knows because he's the first and the last. He was above all, and yet he humbled himself to become a servant of all. To become obedient to death. He knows what it means to give up things, to remain faithful. He knows what it means to give up everything, to become poor for the sake of the gospel. He knows because he died and came to life again. And he knows the struggles we face. The difficulties that come sometime with our faith. He suffered death and yet he was victorious. And so he says, you are rich. Rich with God in eternity. And that's the message of Smyrna. A message of hope. We can get so absorbed in our life and our problems and feel like Jesus may be there somewhere, but our situation's different. That he doesn't really understand what we're going through. That it's not possible really to live in following him all the time. And so we feel alone with our problems. And Jesus says, I know what you're going through because I've gone through it. He knows the pressure to compromise our values, so we can be accepted by others, to have them like us. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. He knows the temptation for material things. Satan offered him the kingdoms of the world. He knows everything he faced because we faced because he faced it as well. And he died for our sins and stands with us to say, I'm here. And he would say to each of us, I know what you're facing, so stand firm and be true. Do not be afraid, he says. He knows your situation, and he's in control. He who is the first and last that died and rose again, who conquered death and hell, can conquer anything life may throw at us. That's the confidence he wants his people to have. That he does reign, that he does take us through the circumstances, not always delivering us, But take us through them. Therefore, there's no need to fear. He's already defeated sin and death. So what can man do to us? In the early 4th century, there was a church leader named Eusebius. When the Roman emperor threatened to take all his possessions to torture and banish, even kill him, his reply was, he needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him free from sin and sorrow. Justin Martyr said, You can kill me, but you cannot harm me. In a book called The Insanity of God, Nip Ripkin writes, People flocked to Christ in great numbers during difficult days of persecution, because that's when they could recognize how God sustains and strengthens his followers through times of trouble. 
The only way we find peace and security in life, the only way we can face life without fear that Jesus says, do not be afraid, is to find strength in one who is above all. As Isaiah said, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. To learn that no matter what we may face, no matter what the devil may do to us, in Christ we're rich. The cross and the tomb that is empty are our assurance. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is merely a deposit guaranteeing what God has in store for us. What makes this passage particularly significant and meaningful is that Jesus doesn't offer a solution to their suffering. He simply acknowledges that he's there with them. That he'll be with them through it all. And in the end, they'll come out victorious. Don't be afraid, he said, of what you're about to suffer. For I tell you, some of you are going to be put in prison to test you. You'll suffer persecution for 10 days or a period of time. Be faithful to the point of death. In his book, Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream, David Platt writes, I was in Indonesia, the country with the largest Muslim population in the world, teaching in an Indonesian seminary. Before they graduate, the students in the seminary are required to plant a church with at least 30 new baptized believers in a Muslim community. I spoke at their commencement ceremony, and as the graduates walked across the stage, I was captivated by the humble yet confident look on their faces. Every one of them had fulfilled the church planting requirement. The most solemn part of the day was a moment of silence for two of their classmates who had died at the hands of their Muslim persecutors. Jesus says, fear not. You'll face difficulties, but you'll come out of it stronger. There are trials and struggles, but God is not blind to it. The way we face is the way the Smyrna was told to face it, through him who is the first and the last, who died and rose again with that unwavering confidence in the power, the sufficiency of Christ and his death on the cross. He knows our situation. He's in control of our situation. So be faithful in your situation. Faithfulness is born of conviction. The word conviction comes from a root which means to be convinced of something. And so, Jesus, we are to be faithful because we're convinced Christ is who he said he is, the Son of God. Convinced that he did what the scriptures say he did when he died on the cross for our sin. Convinced that he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Convinced that he calls us, each of us, to be united with him, that we will live with him. Convinced that he will return one day for his people. And convinced that that, on that day, to his faithful ones, he will give that crown of life. It mentions the victor crown here, the symbol of earthly honors, of military exploits, of athletic prowess. The crown, Jesus said here, is the crown of life, a victory over death. Paul mentions this crown when he told Timothy, there is in store for us, for me, a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. James mentions that crown when he wrote, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. 
Peter wrote about it when he said, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. He who holds on and remains true will receive that victor's crown, Jesus said. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The church at Smyrna may not have had much. They may not have had title or position, all the things that the Ephesians had, but they had all they needed. And for us, it's the same. We may not have everything we want in life, but we have all we need if we have Christ. Paul told the Corinthians, do you not know in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. For everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, and they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Of this passage, the preacher G. Campbell Morgan said, Jesus declared, I was dead, and behold, I am alive. I know your suffering, so think of his suffering. I know your poverty, so think of his poverty. I know the slander of those they say they are Jews but are not. Think of the slander heaped upon him by them which said they were Jews. Fear not, he said. Think of his unswerving faith in God. It says, be faithful unto death. See him faithful unto death. He says, I will give you a crown. See him crowned with life on the resurrection morning. That's the heart, the center of the truth given to the suffering saints at Smyrna, saying, I am your companion in distress. I'm your comrade in darkness. I know I am with you, and just beyond, I will be with you still, leading you to the fountains of living water. He knows the situations we all face. And in the midst of it, he calls us to stand firm, to be faithful, to not fear, because he's with us. It's a message of hope that Jesus gave to the church at Smyrna and that he gives to us as well. Will you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus who is victorious. Not just for a time, not just something that happened 2,000 years ago, but victorious through all time in all places. We thank you, Lord, that we have that hope in him. The one who was victorious over death itself. And as we look ahead just a couple weeks as to celebrate Resurrection Day, the victory he won there, God, may you prepare our hearts to celebrate with him the victory we share through his death and resurrection. We thank you now through his holy name and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all please stand as we sing our hymn of commitment and invitation. And as we do so, it is an invitation. If God is speaking to your heart in some way, whether it's the need to make that step of faith in in accepting him into your heart and life as Savior, or to unite with us as a congregation as we serve him in this place, or perhaps it's to simply seek prayer, someone to pray with you. We invite you to come as we sing together. Mm